Throughout history, a common occurrence is for someone, an artist, to capture a picture or a portrait of the leader of that country or state or empire. Dictators, emperors, presidents, kings, queens, captured in this type of portrait, whether in marble, like often in Greece or in Rome in a statue, or in paintings throughout halls of the head of state in the United States, England, Italy, and others. These portraits are meant to capture the resemblance of what this leader was like, what he looked like, what she looked like. And a fine painter would, would take the brush and with every stroke would try to capture the nuance of what this leader was like. The essence of what the leader is like. Not, not simply an exact representation of what they look like in that moment, but trying to capture through gestures in their face or how they stood or their posture what they were like as a leader, as a king. I can't help but as we look at our psalm this morning in Psalm 145, I can't help but see David with a brushstroke this morning looking at his king and describing and painting a portrait of what his king is like. Capturing not just the essence of resemblance of who he is in that moment, but the very essence of who he is as a king. Wanting for us to see this portrait of what God is like as our great king. And a psalm again this morning is Psalm 145 as we'll be finishing through our summer series in the Psalms. It's our final psalm for the summer before we jump back in uh, next year. It's a great psalm to conclude. This is the final psalm here before it jumps into the songs, uh, psalms of praise, the psalms of the hallelujah psalms, and Psalm 146 is Psalm 150. Uh, this is also the final psalm that we have of David. So you're going to hear in many ways, this is kind of like a capstone psalm for David. This is as he writes who God is like, this final hymn, this final praise, this final psalm that we have of David. And so as we look at it, we're going to be looking at it in three different ways here in verses 1 through 21. We'll see first, as David looks and describes and paints this portrait of the king, we'll see his unsearchable greatness, the king's unsearchable greatness. Second, we will see his unrivaled grace, his unrivaled grace. And third, our unending praise, our unending praise. These are three things that we'll be walking through this morning. I'm going to go ahead and jump in because we have a, there's a lot that David covers here. And I'm going to go ahead and say on the outset, you're going to hear there's a lot of things that David rolls through quickly. You're probably going to want me to drill down deeper on every single one. And I'm going to fight every temptation I have to not do that. Uh, because in a lot of ways with this psalm, what I want us to see this morning is not so much uh, the full exhaustion of every characteristic or act that David describes here, but I want to make sure that we see the glance kind of as a whole, to not focus in on too many of the trees that we miss the forest of God's greatness. As I was talking with Peter, our pastoral resident, about this this week, he described it well. It's like one of those lookout points. Have you ever driven through one of the scenic highways, like the Blue Ridge Parkway through the Appalachian Mountains? Every now and then they have those little lookouts. You pull over and you look and you just see the vast expanse of the greatness of these mountains and forests. In many ways, that's what we're coming to in Psalm 145. A lookout of all that God is like. So just, again, we're going to go through with speed, but I think David means for us to, inspired by God's Spirit, to see, again, the totality of what God is like. So first, his unsearchable greatness. 
This unsearchable greatness, verses 3 through 13a. Now, if you are logical, at this point you may be going, well, Caleb, what about verses 1 and 2? We're skipping them because they're not important. I'm kidding. Some of you weren't listening. Now you're listening. Uh, No, they're very important. We're skipping it because uh, Hebrew poetry is often very different. We're very linear thinkers in the West, so we think logically and in order. If we were to be given the four Gospels and put them in order, we'd probably put the Gospel of John first. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. What a great way to start the New Testament. Just like the Old Testament. Genesis 1. God created the world. Oh, it's perfect. That's not what the Gospel writers do. Inspired by the Spirit, that order is different. Oh, and I want to get into the reason why it's different. We're not going to. Why? Who knows? We'll talk about it another time. But here, we'll see in Psalm 145 what David is doing. He's not thinking linearly. Often, Hebrew poetry was built almost like a mountain. Um, it's known as a chiasm. It's a, it's, a, it's a poetic device in Hebrew poetry in which the beginning and the end often mirrored each other. And then, and then would kind of slowly build. to It got to a center point, the main point, which is often in the middle of the psalm. And so it's different where we would probably build to the conclusion at the end, these Hebrew authors would do something differently. So what I'm doing is verses 1 and 2, we're not going to come back to until the very end. Because it's the same point that David concludes at verse 21. So we're going to get there. It's inspired by God. It is helpful. We're not skipping it. We'll get there. But for all of us linear thinkers in the West, we're contextualizing God's word this morning. So we're starting in verse 3. There it is. So verse 3 and his unsearchable greatness through 13a. And here's what David writes. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Because your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. David begins here in describing God's unsearchable greatness. And I love that phrase. It really sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. David is saying at the very beginning, God's greatness will never be fully comprehended by us because of how great it is. But David's going to give it his best shot in Psalm 145. As he's going to roll through this Rolodex of what God is like and how he is so great. He said, we will never reach the end of it, but we're going to give it our best attempt. One modern worship writer, Brooke Ligertwood, who's written a number of songs for Hillsong, a number of solo songs as well. And one of her songs, I think, puts it so well what David's getting at here and the unsearchable greatness of God. She says this in one of her songs, there isn't time enough to sing of all you've done, but I have eternity to try. Uh, Friends, there is an unsearchable nature to God's greatness that for the end of time, for all of time, all of eternity, we will never reach the bottom of it. And we get to give it our best shot. David begins first at looking at God's unsearchable greatness by focusing on his great acts in verses 4 through 6. His great acts. You hear that word, acts and works, come up a lot in these verses. 
right? Your works, declaring your works, proclaiming your mighty acts, your wondrous works, your awe-inspiring acts, your greatness. David's focusing on what God has done, right? You hear the words using to describe these acts. They are mighty. They are wondrous. They are splendor and gloriously majestic. They are awe-inspiring and filled with power that God has created, that God has redeemed that God stands above, that all that he has done is unlike anything that we can comprehend. His power is unfathomable. I just think about it in this one context. God can control all of creation with a word. Jesus says peace and the winds and the waves obey him like a child. Every storm heeds his command. That's the kind of power that he has. Let's compare that to us. We have a hard time even giving a general percentage of whether or not it will rain tomorrow. With all of our technological advances, we can't even predict what will happen in the afternoon, much less control it. And it's particularly frustrating in Orlando when I'm like, listen, it's the summer. It's going to rain at 2 o'clock. Why do you have 30% chance of rain on their weather channel? I'm not a psychic. I am not a prophet. I did not major in meteorology. But it is going to rain. Regardless, comparing this to God, his acts and his power are so much greater than ours. Oh, and friends, he flung the stars into their place. So I love the advancements of telescopes as they continue to see further and further into space. And you hear Christians and non-Christians alike amazed at the wonder of creation. Now, I don't know all of why God created the universe like he did, but I know that one of the reasons why is for us to see all of that and it generates in us this sense of awe at how big it is. For the Christian, as you see that, that sense is right, but it is then meant to roll that up and go, how much greater then is the one who hung those stars? Oh, his power and his acts are mighty. They are wondrous. They are awe-inspiring. And he uses that power not simply to create, but to redeem, to save and to rescue. At this point, David would have known of God's rescue of the people of Israel who were enslaved to Egypt, that God made a promise to them, and he had a promise to keep. And so through his power, he redeemed them from the greatest power in the known world at that point, the nation of Egypt. They didn't stand a chance. And do you know what Moses had to save his people? He didn't have a great army skilled in warfare. He didn't have military prowess. He had a stick and he had a stutter. But he also had God. And Pharaoh and all the power in this world was no match for the power of God. And he redeemed his people. As David looks, he begins at the greatness of what God has done. At his power and his awe-inspiring acts. And he says, I will declare his greatness. He then moves from what God has done, not only his great acts, but also his great character in verses 7 through 9. You feel the shift in the things that God has done to now who God is. You hear this in verse, again, 7 through 9. That they will give a testimony of your great goodness. They will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. 
slow to anger and great and faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. David now zooms in on what God is like. And beginning first with this testimony that will begin of God's great goodness. That God is good. What we sang it earlier, what truth can calm a troubled soul? God is good. God is good. And where is his grace and goodness known? In the blood of our Redeemer. We see the goodness of God. Not only is he powerful and sovereign, oh, but friends, he is good. Uh, one um, scholar put it this way, the fact that God is good means that he has no evil in him. His intentions and motivations are always good. He always does what is right. The outcome of his plan is always good. There is nothing unpleasant, evil, or dark in him. There is no ulterior motive. There is no questioning or suspicion we are to have. He always does what is good. And his goodness is great. And the response then in verse 7, not only giving the testimony of this great goodness, but then we will joyfully sing of his righteousness. So not only his goodness, but we see his righteousness here in verse 7. His righteousness is known as this, the righteousness of God. It is the divine attribute that describes God as acting always in a way that is consistent with his own character. New Testament author puts it this way, that God cannot deny himself. He's always acting in a way that is consistent with his character. And his character is perfectly right. Again, there's nothing evil in him. When you look at the laws of the Bible, God did not go, oh, here are these truths that exist out in space that I have to conform myself to, the Ten Commandments or any of the commands given in the New Testament. No, all of those commands flow from him. They're a reflection of him. Those truths originate in him. Why should we not kill why should we not steal? Why should we not murder? Why should we not covet? Why should we worship the one true God? Well, because it all flows out from who He is. As truth and righteousness and goodness all are true to who He is. And He cannot act opposite of that. The problem is that each of us have fallen short of that. We are unrighteous. We all stand short of that glory. But He is perfectly righteous. Ethically, morally, in every way He is right. Never acting in contradiction to the perfect standard which is Himself. He is righteous. And we then joyfully sing of that righteousness. I love the adverb that David gives there. He says we not only sing of His righteousness, we are to joyfully sing of His righteousness. Uh, we are to sing filled with joy as we see this picture and this greatness of who God is and the perfect righteousness that he is. He moves on to verse 8 then. Really, this gets into kind of the peak of the psalm here, verses 8 through 10. Again, the kind of the chiastic structure. This is what it builds to. So it should be of no surprise the place that David is building to is this revelation of God's name that he gives to Moses in Exodus 34. Way back in Exodus, we went through Exodus last year. There was that moment where Moses asked, asked to see God's face. And God said, I will pass before you and I'll tell you my name. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it's just so interesting to me that God doesn't say, Hey, Moses, I know I said, you know, back in the burning bush, I am who I am. Right, that's my name. Tell them I am sent you, Yahweh. But my name is really Jim. That's my name. When God reveals his name, here's what he says. The Lord, the Lord. Gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. 
and abounding in steadfast love. This is central for God's people and understanding who God is, not because this is what they want God to be like, because it's what God has revealed himself to be. It is who God has revealed himself to be. So David centers his psalm on that revelation, on that promise, because friends, I promise, we could not create a God as good as the one that exists. Why? Because the Lord is gracious here in verse 8. He deals with his people in a gracious way. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It is undeserved blessing. It is unearned gifts. It means this, that God does not treat us as we deserve. Again, we are all unrighteous. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve eternal separation and punishment from a holy and righteous God. He cannot act against himself. He's a perfect judge. He cannot just excuse or wipe away sin. As a good judge, he must punish evil. And we've all done it. But God does not deal with us in a way that we deserve. He deals with us in a gracious way. His grace to us is not earned. That's a paycheck. His grace to us is a gift. And not only is he gracious, but David shows us in verse 8, he's also compassionate. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament and in the New in Jesus. This is the impulse of God as he sees those who are hurting. As he sees those that are suffering. As he sees those that maybe feel like others in the world don't understand what I'm walking through. God understands. He sees, he hears, he hurts, and he moves towards those in need. Both the sinner and the sufferer. This is the compassion of God. Oh, and friends, it moves him to action. He is gracious and he is compassionate. Oh, and he is loving, verse 8. He is love. God is love. It's part and parcel of what his name is like. Perfect love, a self-sacrificial love, a love that lays itself down for the sake of those that he loves. And we see here a couple other ways this love is described. It's described as faithful or steadfast. It is a love that is not wavering. It is a love that is not fickle. It is a love that does not go, I can't believe you treated me like this last week. I'm done with you. It is a love that is never ending, not going anywhere, always by your side kind of love. It is faithful. This is the love of God to his people. Not only is it faithful. Oh, friends, it is slow to anger. I always think it's interesting here, and again, Exodus 34, and here again, Psalm 145, and so many places in the Psalms. This great revelation of who God is. I could, I could go, it's understanding to me why God would say He's gracious, compassionate, abounding in faithful love, steadfast love. This one always seems a bit unique to me, that He's slow to anger. It was so important, though, that God has told us that was, that's what He's like. Because it's not what we are like, or maybe it's not what I am like. I think of my life, again, whether it's as a parent, whether it's after I've ordered food, or if it's I'm behind a wheel. I do not know if slow to anger is the phrase I would use to describe myself. But it is the phrase that God chose to describe himself. He is not quick-tempered. He is not short-fused. 
He is not moody. He is not fickle. When you come to him, and once again you've fallen. Once again, because you did this last week, and you did it last month, you did it last year. You come to him again in genuine repentance. It's important for you to know who God is. Because if you do not know who God is based on how he's revealed himself to be, you may import what you are like onto him. Or you may import what you see others to be like onto him. And you may go, I know that he is annoyed with me. I know that he is frustrated and done with me. And you may come back trembling. You may come back uncertain as far as how God thinks of you. You may come back much like the prodigal son in Luke 15 going, I have blown my father's entire inheritance and now I've got to go back to him. Let me come up with some way that he can just accept me as a servant. The son did not know the heart of the father. Because how did the father respond when the son came back? The son had a long plan Listen, I've sinned against you and against uh, your entire household. Let me just work as a servant and try to make up what I have blown. And the father cuts him off, embraces him, gives him his ring, goes and gets the finest robe, goes and gets the best calf, and has a celebration because this son of his that was lost has now been found. He was scanning the horizon, looking for his son to come home. And while he was still a long way off, he ran to him, embraced his son in all of his filth, in all of his rebellion, and he welcomed him back home. Jesus gave us that pair to help us see this truth in action that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger that every single time you run back to the father whether it's the first or the millionth when you run back to him in genuine repentance you will find a father waiting for you looking for you running to you to embrace you this is who God is And his great character. And the expression of that in verse 9 is that the Lord is good to everyone. This great goodness rests on every single human being. Both Christian and non-Christian. Again friends, what we deserve in our rebellion to God is death and hell. And God in his goodness has given us another breath. Every single person. The rain that falls, it falls on the just and the unjust. The sun that shines falls on both the Christian and those who don't believe. God and His common grace is good to everyone. J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God put it this way. He said that God is good to all in some ways and good to some in all ways. For those who trust Him, God is good in every way. He is working all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't always understand how that plays out on this side of eternity. Oh friends, there is a mystery there. And there are questions that are there. But when we get to eternity and we see the Almighty and we see what he has been doing, we will see how he was working and weaving everything together for our good. He is good to everyone and his compassion rests on all he has made. Oh, his great character is truly unsearchable. David then shows the response then to this greatness, both in what God has done and who he is, is then his great praise that will be received in verses 10 through 12. You hear then, all that you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you, both all of creation and those that you have saved. 
And they will speak of the glory of your kingdom, will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. There is this praise. You hear the words there. Thank, bless, speak, declare, inform. There is this proclamation that comes, this blessing, this response in our worship as we see what God has done and who He is. In another psalm, Psalm 107, verse 1, puts it this way, Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. His faithful love endures forever. His goodness and His faithful love produces in us this thankful heart, this worshiping heart, this declaring heart, this praising heart that can do nothing else but sing. That's why we talk all the time that Christianity is unique amongst world religions because it is a singing religion. It is a singing faith. I think it's because God designed music in a way that it can express truths that words fall short of. We can feel the truth as we sing. With every chord, both major or minor, uh, with every swell of an instrument, it does something to us internally. That can certainly be manipulated. Oh, but whenever that is used to express and elevate the truth of God, uh, friends, singing does something to us. And it is a response then to what God has done for us and who He is. And notice then where that is to go. It's not just to be for ourselves, this worship, this kind of private encounter with us and God. Let's turn all the lights off, close our eyes, it's us and Jesus. It's not even just meant for one another. It is for one another. It's one of the reasons why we can see one another here as we sing. Because psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are meant to be sung to one another. To encourage one another. But also here we see in verses 10 through 12 that we are in verse 12 to be informing all people of your mighty acts. Every nation. Every tribe. Every tongue. All people of your mighty acts. This worship was never meant to be contained. It was always meant to be shared. Inviting other people into it. Oh friends, this is the motivation for evangelism and for missions. It's worship. The problem with our evangelism is not that we haven't been guilted enough. We have been guilted plenty when it comes to evangelism. Oh no, I think the problem Underneath it all, I know it is for me, is that we don't have a clear enough picture of who God is and what He is like. When we have those moments of clarity at the grandeur and the greatness of God, we not only worship Him, but we declare Him to ourselves, to our own hearts, to one another, and to a world that so desperately needs a Savior, inviting others to come and find the thing that has satisfied our souls. Inviting a world that's searching for life and purpose and meaning and identity and goodness and joy. As we see God, we speak, we declare, we inform because we've seen Him. It changes our posture. And this is Isaiah 6, the great prophet. As he has this revelation of God in Isaiah 6. The Lord, high and lifted up, seated on his throne. His robe fills the temples. Angels surrounding the throne, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The foundations of the earth are shaking. And Isaiah falls and says, Oh, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He sees the righteousness and the holiness of God and goes, I don't deserve to be here. And God then comes, and there's this image of this burning coal that touches Isaiah's lips, and he's cleaned and purified. And grace is extended to him. 
And he's brought into the presence of God. And as Isaiah sees this picture of God, what is his response? Oh Lord, here I am. Send me. What motivated Isaiah's heart for missions was not guilt. It wasn't even seeing the need around the world, which is, which is helpful to see. But if our only motivation for global missions is to see how many unreached people groups there are, and we're motivated by guilt that we're not doing anything about it, that guilt won't last. The only thing, again, it's helpful to see the need, but the great motivation of our evangelistic and missional thrust has to be a heart that is overflowing in worship that wants to invite others into it. Lord, here I am, send me. John Piper, the pastor in Minneapolis at Bethlehem um, Baptist Church, has famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. The thing he's getting at is that missions exist because we want to go to places where there isn't worship of God and bring people to worship of Him. That's helpful. That shows us the end of missions. It's worship. But friends, what we see here is that worship is also the motivation of missions. It's the motivation and the end here of missions, that we would inform all people of the mighty acts and glorious splendor of your kingdom. This is his great praise that he deserves for who he is and what he is like. Finally, in the first half of verse 13, we see his great kingdom. His great kingdom. That your kingdom, Lord, is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. David closes here this section by focusing on the the never-ending eternal nature of the kingdom of God. And it's important to remember who's writing this psalm. It's David. Who was David? David was the king. He had a kingdom in Israel. But as he was writing about as being king, notice who he addressed this psalm to in verse 1. I exalt you, my God, the king. David, the king of Israel, is writing to the great king. And he's talking about his kingdom. Lord, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. David surely had the promise that God had given him from 2 Samuel 7, where God told David, David was wanting to build God a house, a temple. He had a tabernacle, and he was like, listen, God, I need to make you something nice, right? Uh, you want to, um, uh, oh, what's the HGTV show? Um, flip it or sell it or love it or list it. There it is. <laughs> Lord, we got the tabernacle here. You want to love it or list it? I need to make you something better. Let me build for you a temple. And God tells him, I don't need a temple. It was never about a nice house for me. Instead, I'm going to make you a house. God turns it back to David. But he's not talking about a physical house. He's talking about a lineage, a dynasty, a house that will come after him. And he says this in verse 12, that when your time comes, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come after from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now, friends, that promise is one of the pillars of the Bible that the narrative and story of Scripture is built on. God entering in saying, David, from your lineage, from your descendant, will come the everlasting kingdom. How can God say that whenever Israel was destroyed in the first century? When it continues to hold on as a known state today? Well, because God was never talking about the physical nation of Israel, this descendant, this son of David, this root of Jesse, 
that was described was the great king of kings that would come. This Jesus that his kingdom would be established forever and ever. This is all pointing forward to him and this kingdom that would last forever. David is saying, God, your reign knows no end. Your rule will last forever. There is coming a day. I don't know what it will look like. And I don't know what it will be. But this son of mine that you promised will have a kingdom that will never fail. And he's worthy then of this praise. And his great kingdom. And how is all of this this greatness, this unsearchable greatness of God to be preserved and passed on. Right, we kind of glossed over it, but I'm going to go back and highlight it. Here in verse 4, it's preserved and passed on as one generation will declare your works to the next. Sounds similar again to what Olivia had read earlier in Deuteronomy 6 and that great proclamation from God in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This great revelation that God is a monotheistic God, not, not a one of the gods, He is one. This is God here that He is one. Not only that, then gives the great command in verse 5. Jesus says the greatest command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Then verse 6 says in Deuteronomy 6 that these words are to be written on our hearts. What an incredibly huge statement that God is giving to Israel here in Deuteronomy 6. And what does he say will come next in the preservation and the passing down of those truths? Is he going to talk about something as great? Goodness, kings, armies, economics, politics? Oh no, here's what he says. You are to repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. God looks at what makes a good king. What shows a soldier what is worth fighting for. What brings justice and righteousness to politics and economics. It's parents raising up their children in the instruction of the Lord, passing these things on to them. When Italy and I went to Israel, we had a, a Jewish tour guide. And he said, in some ways, you can sum up the Jewish faith like this. Tell it to your kids. Oh, friends, I wish Christians could feel that same impulse. We could feel that calling as fathers and mothers to tell it to our kids. What that looks like. How does that look like within our homes? To declare from one generation to the next these incredible works. Well, I won't spend much time on it because that's really what we're going to be talking about tonight. Family worship, family discipleship. How, as one generation, can we declare reading God's word together, singing God's word together, praying together? How can we do this within our homes? Again, if you want to learn more about that, you can sign up um, either on the, in the bulletin or on our app. I mean, tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going to be looking at that exact question. But that is the way in which God has designed for these truths to be preserved and passed on. This is his unsearchable greatness. Oh, friends, second, we see his unrivaled grace. His unrivaled grace. Verse 13b through 20. I'll read it just in its entirety. And again, you'll hear as he flips through all of this. 13b through 20. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. 
The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. And the Lord guards all who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My friends, we see here in verse 13 that God is faithful in all he says, in all his words, and he's gracious in all his actions. Faithful in all he says and gracious in all he does. We see that God never breaks a promise and he treats us like we don't deserve. His grace is unrivaled. What does his grace look like? We see his gracious help. His gracious help here in 14. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. Those who are hurting, those who've experienced the brokenness of this world, as you walk in this morning and you go, I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders. I don't know if I could take another step. You felt sinned against. You felt the brokenness of this world. You walk in here maybe limping this morning. That you feel like you've fallen. You feel like you are oppressed. Either as the sinner or the sufferer. Friends, I hope you see who God is as he helps those who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. The poor, the oppressed, the bruised, the weak, the limping, the skeptical, the uncertain, the doubting, the sufferer, the sinner, all have an unfailing friend in Jesus. These are the people that were drawn to Jesus in his ministry. It's no different than the people that Jesus' ancestor David led, the people that were drawn to him. 1 Samuel 22 verses 1 and 2 shows us a picture of who was drawn to David. As David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam, when David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there, there. And in addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around them, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Those were the friends that were drawn to David because he was a good king. And David helped those who were in need, helped those that were distressed. Oh, friends, God is the same way. He doesn't wait for us to get our lives together and kind of have everything buttoned up. For those that are hurting, God is our friend in need in that moment as he helps us, his gracious help. We also see his gracious provision in verses 15 to 16. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing that God has provided all that we need. One of my favorite hymns says that in the, uh, in the chorus, all I have needed, thy hand has provided. Everything that we need, God has given. He is an abundant God, a bountiful God who gives us what we need. Now, it's not always what we would choose. It's not always what we want. But we can rest in this promise that he opens his hand and he gives food at the proper time and satisfies the desire of every living thing that he provides and gives to us all that we need. Oh, friend, what an incredible truth as well for us to realize that all that we have has been given to us. He has provided it. We don't own it. We're not the possessors of it. He has given it. He has opened his hand and he satisfies that desire and his gracious provision. Verse 17, we also see though his gracious faithfulness, that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all of his acts. Faithful in all of his acts. This faithfulness is a sense of steadfastness, firmness, and fidelity. It's the opposite of wishy-washy, uncertain, or almost any politician that we know. He is faithful. 
God always does what he says he will do. Always. I don't know if you know a friend that will text you back. You're making plans like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll see you there. We'll make plans. We solidify it. I'll see you there. Maybe you are this friend. And whenever you make those plans, the person on the other end of that plans goes, we will see if this person shows up. But you never have to wonder if God will show up. He is faithful in all of his acts. He is always keeping his promises. Not only is he faithful, but we also see his gracious presence in verse 18. That the Lord is near. The Lord is near all who call out to him. All who call out to him with integrity. Again, the two places that God's described as being near is the brokenhearted and those who call out to him. If you wonder where God is, that's where he is. So you may be this morning wondering what God is doing in your life. That you feel brokenhearted. And you're walking through suffering and you're going, God, what are you doing? Oh, that is a legitimate question that we may not know until we get to eternity. But while you may not know what God is doing, you never have to wonder where he is. He is right beside you. He is near you to the brokenhearted and all who call out to him. He is always near in his gracious presence. He also offers his gracious rescue in verse 19. He fulfills the desires of those who hear him, fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. He hears, he saves, he fulfills. He is a God of great rescue. Shows that God is listening. Always listening to the cries of his people. And he hears them. Not only does he hear them, he moves them to act and to save them. And then to fulfill the desires of those who fear him. You see again here the description of what it means to worship God. It is not a dry religion that you just go through the motions. Very rote, academic, theological. Let me try to do all the things in my life that are no longer fun. This is what it means to be a Christian and to love God. Friends, this psalm and all the Bible flies in the face of that mentality. And unfortunately, the world may view Christians that way because maybe that's how many of us live the Christian life. Oh, but God has given us a different picture of what it means to follow him. That he, when you come to him and fear him, he fulfills your desires. He satisfies, you hear it early in 16, satisfies the desire of every living thing. The things that your soul has been longing for, it's found only in God himself. And so we then joyfully sing, the happiest people on earth should be Christians. The people that have the most fun on earth should be Christians. Friends, I don't know a lot about being a parent. We have young children. I'm not ready to do a full parenting class on all the things that you need to learn about parenting. I love how it's always like children of young parents are like, I've figured out parenting. They write the books. I'm not there at all. But I've heard enough older people say and observed Christian families to see that one of the main things to aim at is not simply, are we following all the right things? Are we doing all the right things? But really asking this question, are you happy in Christ as a parent? And when your children observe you, is it real? Is it genuine? When all the other things in this world come clamoring for their hearts, can they have in their memory, no, there's a different kind of happiness that my mom and dad have in Jesus. And I want that. It's not guaranteed. Salvation's of the Lord. Oh, but friends, there is no formula. May we be a people marked by happiness as God has fulfilled our desires for those who fear him because he's rescued us. He has heard our cry and he has saved us.
We finally see not only his gracious rescue, but his gracious protection in verse 20. The Lord guards all those who love him. He keeps them. He protects them. This was Psalm 121 last week. This great promise of God. But not only does he guard us and protect us, but he also attacks and defeats our enemies, destroys all the wicked. There is nothing that can get to us and then there was nothing that will be able to get away from God's goodness and his righteousness. That he destroys all the wicked. Oh, friend, evil and injustice will not get away with it in this world. So no matter what has been done against you, friends, it will be dealt with. As we hide ourselves in the refuge of who God is, we have the confidence that he destroys all the wicked. That there is no one who will get away with injustice. So how do we respond to this kind of greatness? How do we respond to this unsearchable greatness and unrivaled grace? Well, this is verses 1 and 2 and verse 21. We respond with our unending praise. And here verses 1 and 2 and 21. I exalt you, my God, the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. So let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. That when we see this picture, when we come and look at this portrait of how great God is, we then sing of his greatness. We sing of his praise. And eternity won't be enough time for us to be able to sing of it. But we'll have all of eternity to try. As we sing of this unending praise, this is our response. Oh, friends, as David paints this portrait of his covenant God, Yahweh, does it look and sound familiar? Does it look like anyone that you know? In particular, does it look like anyone that you maybe have read about? If no one jumps into your mind, let's look then to the one, to the man who was crowned with thorns in John 19. As Pilate presents Jesus before the crowds, right before he's crucified. And here's what Pilate proclaims. Behold the man. Behold your king. Without knowing it, Pilate sounds a lot like David. As we look at the king. And all of his power and all of his authority. Oh, and all of the expression of his grace and compassion seen there in that moment. Thorns on his head, robe wrapped around him, flesh ripped from his skin, walking to take the place of ruined sinners. Behold him. Because there he is, the great king himself. This descendant from David, crowned with glory and suffering, filled with power and compassion, the creator and sustainer of the universe, on his way to die for you. In him, we truly see power that is awe-inspiring. Healing, sickness, calming storms, commanding death. In him, we truly see righteousness that is faultless, perfectly obeying the law that he had written. In him, we truly see goodness that is pure, grace that is bottomless, compassion that is moved towards the hurting, love that is unwavering, a kingdom that is everlasting, help that heals the broken, provision that is always perfectly timed, faithfulness that always keeps its promises, presence that never abandons, rescue that is always ready, and protection that always conquers and keeps. 
He is the king that David was writing about. And what is our response to this lamb? To this suffering lamb, this king that we see slaughtered? Well, friends, this response is shown to us in the end in Revelation 5. That there is this picture of this scroll that can't be opened, that will in some ways bring in this everlasting kingdom, but no one can open it. And there's this picture of an angel holding this scroll, asking the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And there ain't nobody. Nobody is worthy to go and do this. But then one of the elders said to me, this is John, not me personally. Sorry, I'm back reading now Revelation 5.5. Says to John, John, don't weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And he comes and he brings finally this everlasting kingdom with him. And there is a song that breaks out in heaven. This multitude of praise rolling like wave after wave. And this new song that's sung that says, you are worthy to take the scrolls and open its seals. Why? Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth and so they sang with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing there in Revelation 5 we see the fulfillment of Psalm 145 as we unendingly praise this great and crucified king Friends, our great striving as Christians is not to simply know more or do better. It is to get a clearer picture of the King. Our greatest effort should be given to seeing Him, to looking to Him, and to knowing Him. This is why we are here. And it's what we are inviting others into. To behold this King. To look at this portrait that David has painted with a nuance in every brushstroke and try to find the end of this unsearchable greatness of God. Although we'll never be able to find it. We've got all of eternity to try. Let's pray.